Welcome to the Blue Economy Podcast, presented by Rhode Island, the Ocean State. I'm your host, David Hirschman, and on today's episode, we sat down with Jonathan Stone, the Executive Director of Rhode Island's Save the Bay. Save the Bay is a 50-year-old organization whose mission is to protect Narragansett Bay through advocacy, education, and habitat restoration and adaptation. And during Jonathan's tenure, the organization has successfully challenged a number of major infrastructure projects that could have damaged the bay, advocated against climate change, and completed many habitat restoration projects. Welcome to the podcast, Jonathan. Jonathan, welcome to the podcast. Um, So first, give me a little bit of background about you. Uh, On the site, it says you originally moved to Rhode Island because of a love of the sea. Um, Where did that love of the sea come from originally? Well, thank, first of all, thanks for having me on the, on the program. I really appreciate it. And uh, it's always nice to have an opportunity to talk about our work at Save the Bay. Uh, I uh, grew up spending summers on Buzzards Bay to our east. And uh, that's where I spent, you know, many, many, many hours of the summer on, on the bay, sailing, swimming, fishing. And my family was on the water all the time. So um, in the mid-70s, I landed in Providence at, uh, at Brown and um, was on the crew team and first experienced Narragansett Bay on the Seekonk River in 1976, uh, paddling up the Seekonk. And that um, was quite an eye-opening experience. It was essentially an open sewer at that time. Um, oh, wow. That was my first introduction to Narragansett Bay. Uh, fast forward to 1989, I'd been working in, in Boston and I uh, was starting a family and wanted to have raise my family here in Providence. So I moved back to uh, Rhode Island to Providence in 1989 and I've been here ever since. Cool. Well, so for the uninitiated, can you talk a little bit about the different kinds of work that Save the Bay does and kind of how the organization's mission has kind of has shifted over time, I guess? Or yeah, sure. Has, yeah. So one of the interesting things about the organization is that we are one of the oldest environmental groups of any kind in the United States. Uh, We are the um, third oldest coastal estuarine conservation uh, and restoration organization, advocacy organization in the country. Uh, We were started in 1970. Um, Only two other organizations predate us, Save San Francisco Bay that was founded in 1963 in the Chesapeake Bay Foundation and was founded in 1968. So we were uh, grassroots, were and are a grassroots organization that was founded by people of all walks of life who really care about the Bay. Uh, Our mission has really evolved over time. Our central focus has always been the Bay, but the uh, work that we do has expanded from initially working on um, energy projects that were proposed for Narragansett Bay, our, our origins really relate to a couple of proposals to build oil refineries in Narragansett Bay, which we were instrumental at defeating. And we worked on a number of advocacy battles related to energy infrastructure projects, such as uh, liquefied natural gas terminal proposed for Mount Hope Bay, another LNG terminal proposed for Prudence Island, uh, another oil refinery, uh, a couple of nuclear power plants, and so forth. So I would say the decade of the 70s was really marked by our work on these sort of classic advocacy battles against um, transforming the Bay into a large petrochemical complex. That's what would have happened, but for us and other activists who were um, fighting that. 
In the 80s, our focus really shifted toward dealing with the questions of pollution. And um, that related to sewage, both wastewater pollution and industrial pollution. Uh, in the 90s, uh, our mission really expanded dramatically when we embarked on an effort to uh, restore habitats around Narragansett Bay. Um, important coastal habitats include things like salt marshes, um, eelgrass beds, working on river restoration to allow migratory fish to travel upstream. And uh, that was a big kind of hallmark of, this, of the 90s. And really starting in the mid-90s through the present day, uh, our work is focused on much more complicated uh, and diffuse environmental threats, such as polluted runoff that affects the water quality around the bay as one example. Another example would be plastics pollution that is just a byproduct of our modern industrial culture. Plastics and, pollution in the, the bay specifically? Yes, or in, in, okay. in, the, in the bay specifically. You know, how do plastics end up in the bay? Okay. And the, the, of course, the challenge with plastics is that they persist. They don't go away. Um, and we've also been dealing with the um, effects of climate change. And the, those effects have been very evident, certainly in the last 15 years. And much of our habitat restoration work has focused now on adaptation. How do we adapt to a changing climate? And I just one last thing I would add about how the work of the organization has evolved in around about 20 years ago, the, the organization, the board and the leadership made the decision to expand our educational program. So we have a very robust, substantial marine science educational program, experiential learning for students and for members of the general public um, that are, take place on the water, on our boats and in our facilities in Newport and here in Providence. So uh, the environmental education piece, in our view, is very strategic for the work that we do because it helps engage people, educate people about the ecology of the bay and really ultimately helps them understand how they can play a role in protecting the bay. And that's kind of a short version of, of what we do right now. Cool. Well, so the organization is a nonprofit. Tell me a little bit about your kind of funding sources and partners and, you know, I guess how does... Yeah, yeah sure. So we have... Um, our funding has evolved over time, but at the at, at present, uh, about ninety plus percent of our funding is from private individuals and charitable foundations. Uh, we get virtually no state money, and we do compete for federal grants, uh, both environmental protection agency grants, uh, dealing with water quality issues, and um, NOAA, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration grants that um, we compete for environmental education program monies there. Uh, so all in our federal funding fluctuates year in, year out, maybe it's five to 10%. Uh, the rest of our funding is all individuals and, and um, foundations. Um, with the one exception of our education program, we do generate income from our public programs. Uh, for example, we have an aquarium, a very awesome, you know, cool little aquarium at First Beach in Newport, which is one of a kind. Uh, we offer summer camps. Again, this is in a normal time. Right now we're in a very unusual yeah. time. But uh, summer camps, we offer seal watch trips in the spring and the fall and the winter. And those collectively generate about 20% uh, of our income. And that do those dollars help us lower the cost of our school programs. So we really view those funds as ways to help subsidize or increase access for our school programs to schools that cannot afford the full cost of the program. Cool. 
Well, so um, advocacy around ocean s sustainability has been around for a while. Sure. And it's often posed in opposition to industry, kind of whether that's offshore drilling or fisheries or, you know, you name it. Um, but I feel like I'm starting to hear more and more arguments touting the economic benefits of, of sustainability and conservation. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. I mean, I, you know, obviously we're seeing more and more economic damage from things like climate change. And, right, uh, right. Well, I think, you know, sort of, again, one of the, one of these sort of um, false propositions of, of, uh, of environmental protection um, often, often um, raised by individuals in industry is that you can have a trade-off. You get one or the other, you get environmental protection or you get jobs and eco economic growth. And uh, that's about the furthest thing from the truth. As I think all of us in Rhode Island know, um, the cleanup of the Bay, which involved very real cost and regulation has actually promoted economic growth for activities and uses of the Bay. So they go hand in hand. And that's always been our, our view that um, so many people benefit from a clean environment. Uh, and it's both direct and indirect ways. And direct ways are sort of obvious, you know, uh, people want to swim on clean beaches and clean water on the beaches. So that attracts tourists. It attracts, you know, residents to enjoy uh, Narragansett Bay. Fishing, another great example. We've expanded in Rhode Island, we've expanded the number of shellfishing beds that are open year round for wild harvest shellfishermen. And this is principally cohogs. Uh, we've expanded uh, our aquaculture industry in Rhode Island, thanks to clean water. So we've the effort associated with cleaning up the bay and protecting the bay has actually generated job growth in particular sectors. The biggest ones are going to be recreation, hospitality, uh, fishing. And in fishing, for example, there's both commercial and recreational. The recreational industry in Rhode Island is a big deal. It's a, uh, for example, the Rhode Island Saltwaters An Saltwater Anglers Association, I believe, has something like se uh, seven or eight thousand members. Wow. Um, that's not counting charter boat captains. It's not counting tackle shops, hotels, restaurants. It all are thrive around the um, the fishing uh, industry. So, you know, all of us who have an interest in the bay have a shared interest in protecting and preserving it, and in some degree, it's self interest because it's good for business, it's good for jobs, it's good for economy. And even companies that are, or developers who are working on coastal development or projects that might touch the bay certainly are aware of the importance of preserving access um, and respecting the values of uh, a mixed-use resource like Narragansett Bay. Well, okay, so going a little deeper on that, like, you know, there are plenty of predict of uh, predictions for dire economic consequences as a result of rising temperatures and rising seas. Um, and we're obviously starting to experience some of them. Um, if left unchecked, do you think some of the economic impacts that a state like Rhode Island might experience, I guess, what, what are some of the economic impacts that you think Rhode Island could experience from climate change? Yeah, I mean, there's, I think they call it, fall into a couple of categories. There's the direct impact of um, flooding um, and storm surges that are associated with storms. You know, today we're uh, dodging a bullet in the sense of a hurricane or a tropical storm that's traveling to our west. But there's vulnerability on our coastal infrastructure. 
to storms. And that vulnerability is going to go up with time. And it's both private property and public property. Then there is the vulnerability of economic disruption when roads are flooded, wastewater treatment plants are overwhelmed, uh, bridges are damaged, um, dams burst. Those are all infrastructure issues that are vulnerable to the um, sort of the, uh, the effects of climate change. And it's not just the damage to the property, it's the disruption that comes with that. As you recall from the 2010 floods, uh, that was incredibly disruptive to the economy of the entire state. So that disruption piece is another part of it. A third kind of aspect to the how climate change affects the economy relates to those industries that revolve around uh, the bay, the ecology of the bay. So in, in this regard, I'm thinking about fishing, for example. Uh, 20 years ago, we, have a, we had a thriving lobster industry in the bay. Um, we have almost no lobster in the bay now. And that is, is the that, largest... Is that- is that because they mi- they've migrated north? I mean, is that the... Well, essentially what happens is they're not literally migrating north, but they're moving into deeper water where it's colder. Lobster or cold water species, as water temperatures rise, there are not going to be as many lobster around. There are other effects as well. There's been a shell disease that's affected the lobster population. But the heart of it is that um, as water temperatures rise, lobster are going to be found in deeper water or the colder water and the lobster fishery in Maine has been thriving. Um, even that may be vulnerable in coming years as water temperatures in the Gulf of Maine rise. But that's an example. You know, years ago, we had a, uh, years ago, 30 years ago, we had a winter flounder fishery in the Bay. We really don't have a winter flounder fishery anymore. And there, it's a complicated set of re- reasons behind that. But one reason is rising water temperature. There are other issues over fishing and so forth, but rising water temperature is a big factor behind these sort of shifting species. Um, the, there is, it's not all negative in the sense that uh, some species will migrate north or move north. Others from the south will move here. Um, a good example would be blue crabs, which is a very uh, thriving commercial fishery in the Chesapeake Bay. And blue crabs are actually moving north. Um, and we're going to see more and more blue crab in Narragansett Bay in the next 10, 20 years. So um, it's this concept of species shift that is also economically disruptive. And that's one of those impacts of climate change. What do you think are the kind of the biggest threats to wildlife in the Bay? I mean, is it just the, this kind of climate change? I think the climate, climate change is a big issue. I think one of the challenges for resource managers in Rhode Island and elsewhere is how the regulations keep up with the changing climate conditions. So, for example, in Rhode Island, the Rhode Island Department of Environmental Management is charged with the responsibility overseeing our fisheries. They set the rules on what you can catch, how many, and so forth, what species and what size, what limits there are. And it's hard to keep those rules up to date if the ecology of the bay is shifting and, and, and changing quickly. So that's going to be a challenge for resource managers. Another big thing that we worry a lot about uh, in the health of the bay that affects wildlife um, is really the water temperature issue. As water temperatures rise, the risk to water quality also rises. And by that I mean, um, if you dump too much fertilizer into Narragansett Bay and the temperatures are rising, you're gonna get more algae growth, you're gonna get more eutrophication, which is a fancy word for saying there's gonna be less oxygen in the water. Okay. So that's something else that can affect uh, the animals in the bay. 
So you had a, um, an op-ed in the Providence Journal at the end of May that argued that the state should make the Bay a priority as it wrestles with a difficult bu budget year, um, and that protecting the waterfront would help speed the state's recovery. Can you talk a little bit about the impacts that financial neglect could have, um, you know, say it's a really tight budget and- uh, Sure, know. yeah. Well, I mean, I think, you know, natural resources, uh, in, in, in specifically public parks, are so central to Rhode Island as a, as a community and as the ocean state. I mean, we have some of the most beautiful parks anywhere on the East Coast. Um, you think about Fort Adams and you think about Brenton, you know, Brenton Park, and you think about, you know, Rocky Point and uh, Cold State Park. These are just magnificent resources that are used by lots of people and they're overused, uh, or the, I should put it this way, they're not overused, but the facilities that are designed to support the experience at these parks has not been maintained to the degree that it should be. And this is where investment into our public park system really is, makes the whole experience of visiting in parks more attractive. It's very good for the, it's protective of the environment. We're talking about, you know, showers, we're talking about um, wastewater treatment on site, you know, roads, pathways, so forth. So the infrastructure in our park system really deserves to be maintained. And it's been chronically underfunded by the state over years. And the reasons for that are complex, but this particular budget cycle, the governor had put forth a very robust environmental bond that includes $40 million to invest in our parks. Goddard State Park is another example. And these investments are crucial to enhancing the experience of visiting our parks. And that's good for the environment and it's good for the economy. That's what attracts people to our parks in the first place. So that's another one, one good example that the, um, there are other investments that the governor's proposed budget includes in this environmental bond. Uh, the wastewater treatment plants that are charged with cleaning up wastewater before it's discharged the bay require constant maintenance and upgrading. And there's a significant pot of money in this particular environmental bond that would support our wastewater treatment plant operators in maintaining state-of-the-art facilities to make sure water quality is preserved and improved. Um, that's another example of how important these investments are. And it drives all of the activity. They're so fundamental to all the activity that drive the economic growth around the Bay, be it fishing, recreation, hospitality, real estate, et cetera. You know, there's this sort of intangible that you didn't, you didn't directly address, but I, I appreciate the opportunity to, to point it out. You know, I've spent more than half my life in Rhode Island. For your listeners who have grown up here, spent their entire life here, life here really revolves around the bay in so many ways. And you don't have to have property on the bay. You don't even have to be a fisherman or a sailor. You can just enjoy the view and take it all in. And I think that's where, you know, we have this opportunity to invest in this spectacular natural resource. If we don't invest in it, it's, it's not going to be there for us when we need it most. And this current COVID-19 public health crisis is a great example. More and more people are getting outdoors with their families and enjoying the outdoors. And it's, I think, evident to many, many people that um, now more than ever, we should be investing in taking care of the resource. So I, I really appreciate, again, the opportunity to, to be on the program. Thank you for listening to the Blue Economy Podcast, presented by Rhode Island, the Ocean State. And thanks again to Jonathan Stone for taking the time to join us. 
If you want to learn more about the show or catch up on past episodes, visit our website at www.blueeconomypodcast.com or follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. I'm David Hirschman from Providence. Thanks again for listening.